We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue in our study of the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we're in to the nitty-gritty. We're into the practical section, as it were, just a little bit of an altitude flyover of where we are and how we got here. In chapter 4, verse 1, after three chapters of doctrine, he says, I implore you to walk, live in a manner worthy of the Lord. That means to have your life in line with your confession. Then in verse 17, he says, don't live, don't walk any longer as you used to, as the Gentiles walk, as an unbeliever walks. Be different than you were. Verses 17 and 19, you did not learn Christ this way. He's the curriculum of Christianity in verse 20. And then he gives us a three-step process for change, very simply laid out in verses 22, 23, and 24. In reference to your former life, you lay aside the old self. Verse 23, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You think differently. And verse 24, you put on the new you. you. You change. You become a different you than you were as a believer. Christianity demands a fundamental radical change in heart and in deed, in life and in affections of a Christian. Well, after that, Paul then is very staccato with some put off and put on. All of these commands that he gives through the end of the chapter involve stopping doing something and starting doing something else in opposition to that sin that we're repenting. And today we come to the issue of work. I'm entitled this Work to Share. Work to Share. Let me read verse 28. It seems like a little bit of an outlier. Why does this show up in the list? Well, I hope after we study this, For a few minutes, you'll understand exactly why it was so important to the apostle's heart. Ephesians 4, 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. I came across an article recently by Cal Thomas, a conservative pundit, who raises an issue that I think is worthy of us to at least consider this morning. Thomas writes this in his little article entitled, Getting Paid Not to Work Can Be Addictive. <laughs> Getting Paid Not to Work Can Be Addictive. He writes, the Wall Street Journal reported on several states that have stopped or will soon cease sending out unemployment checks. This has resulted in many of the former recipients of other people's money going out to find or return to work. Who knew, he says. This reminds me of the welfare reform bill worked out by President Bill Clinton and Speaker Newt Gingrich 25 years ago. Some critics have said that the measure would cause people to starve in the streets. It didn't. Most found work when they realized government checks would no longer be forthcoming. Everywhere there are new now hiring signs. Some stores and companies are offering incentives for employees to return to work, including cash bonuses, electronic devices. It makes one wonder what happened to what was once known as the work ethic. And when one was seen as being noble, having a job that provided for oneself and family, and that was a mark of good character. 
During the welcome reduction of COVID-19 cases and deaths, it was widely reported that people were refusing to go back to work because for some, their unemployment and other government benefits were higher than their previous wages. It's human nature. As the journal noted, federal pandemic aid boosted unemployment payments by $300 a person each week and extended these payments for as long as 18 months, well longer than the typical 26 weeks or less, which unemployment typically covers. Forbes magazine calculated that a combined state and federal unemployment benefit ranged from the mid $500 a week to nearly $800 per week, depending on the state. That's more than some people earned by working. Getting paid not to work can be addictive. Accompanying reluctance to return to work is another reflection on the dark side of human nature. It is indolence, which is defined as, quote, disliking work or effort, lazy, idle, end quote. He goes on to write, granted, not all who have been reluctant to return to work, at least while the checks keep coming, are necessarily indolent, but many seem to be, and it's a bad condition to encourage in an individual or in a nation. Part of this, I think, he writes, is related to the never-ending attacks by the left on the rich and successful, rich in quotation marks. The notion that one is entitled to certain things without having to work for them, along with the envy of others who have made the work ethic for them, is also bad, a bad character trait because it diminishes appreciation for the successful and subsidizes failure. What we promote, we get more of, and what we condemn, we get less of. In condemning wealth and success, we are likely to get fewer people striving for those things that improve their own lives and the lives of others. That, too, reflects the dark side of human nature. And he ends with this. We can't say we have not been warned with the ancient wisdom that includes this admonition. And then he quotes Solomon from Proverbs 10.4. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Interesting words, probably nothing that you haven't thought in recent months. But I want to say in no time in my lifetime has the issue of working and the presence or absence of a work ethic been in the mainstream of thought like it has been in recent months and in most headlines. It just raises the question that this text addresses for us. Do you have a theology for work? Do you have a theology for occupation, for generating income? Are you aware that God has said much about work in his word? God inaugurated work. He gave work to man. He gave it to our first parents. Even before the fall in Genesis 3, in Genesis 2.15, we read, Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it, to work in it. So before there was sin, there was work. And at the end of that chapter, he said, Behold, my creation is very good, which included work. But after the fall, thorns and thistles infested 
the effort of Adam to maintain the land. Work changed. It became toilsome and it became burdensome and it remains that way to this day. We were told that we will earn our keep by the sweat of our brow. In other words, it's going to be hard, but there's still dignity in it. So many Old Testament laws regulate how to do work. This included helping those who had less and were in difficult situations with your work. Remember the book of Ruth? The book of Ruth is built on the simple command in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor glean, gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien, the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Notice this. There was no welfare system in ancient Israel. Instead of saying, work to have a lot so you can give it away, he said, work and leave part of your field so that the poor can come and work themselves in your field. Moses was not giving a blank check of welfare. He commanded that there was enough grain left unharvested in the fields to allow the poor to come and work for themselves and harvest and secure their own food. Why? Because there's dignity in work. It's a grace. There's grace in work. Work generates a, a kind of dignity, a kind of productivity in the worker that values the wages earned and the way those wages are used. My parents are both in heaven, so it's really easy to talk about them. But one of the things that I, I remember so distinctly is that when, uh, and I was given some athletic scholarship in college, but it didn't cover everything. And I remember my dad saying, I wish we could help you, Ricky, but if you're, if you're going to go to school, you're, you're going to have to work to pay for it. And I, I was a bit embittered in my heart about that. I had friends who didn't have to work. They could, their parents were paying for it. By the way, if you're paying for your kid's school, this is not a lecture about that. But I will tell you now, looking back many decades ago, I had no idea the value of working to pay for my college. It was incredible. You know what was different? The first year I had an athletic scholarship. The second year I was working to pay for it all myself. And I noticed that because I was paying for Economics 101, I didn't want to pay for it twice, so it mattered that I studied. Little things began to blossom. Like, this, this is valuable. I didn't want to skip class because I was paying for it. Now, Dad never told me, this is what I'm going to teach you, but wow, did it. I'm not saying to throw your college funds away, but there is value in learning how to work for what's important to you. Work generates dignity. It generates a value of wages. In one of his most memorable illustrations in the Bible, Solomon gave his son Rehoboam a very interesting assignment. And maybe you could give this assignment to your kids. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. You got to wonder, did he see something in Rehoboam that we don't see in the narrative? Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Learn from her which, having no chief, 
officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. He said, learn from the ant. The ant works hard. The ant works ahead of time. The ant knows how to save. The ant knows how to invest. And the ant knows how to reap. Part of Solomon's curriculum for parenting was to instill a strong work ethic. Parents, can I just encourage you? Teach your kids to work. Don't buy them anything. And just this is just a, this is a preference, but we have a parent class, parenting class coming up, and you'll hear this again. I would strongly encourage you, your kids should not get an allowance because they live at your house. That's just learned welfare. We had a list of things that our kids could earn money for. If you want want money, this is what you can do to earn it. And this is something you have to do every week to have your money. Teach them to have a strong work ethic. Paul was not silent about this in the New Testament. He said it's so important that in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's pretty strong. If you won't work, you should be hungry. Now, as we'll see coming up, there, there are legitimate needs. There are ways that we can help people who are less fortunate and who haven't made the money that they need to, and that's what we should be about. That's going to be our last point today. But that's the outlier Christians should stand out in our dark world as hard workers. You should stand out at your place of employment as the hardest worker in the office. Hardest worker at the job site. The most faithful. And Paul will give us some specific instructions about this in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. That Just fair warning, we're going to come back to this biblical work ethic in chapter 6. He gives us a series of staccato commandments in this chapter that we've been looking at. Tell the truth, verse 25. Temper your anger, verses 26 and 27. Work to share, verse 28. Watch your words, verses 29 and 30. And refashion your relationships in verses 31 and 32. And here in verse 28, we're given specific instruction about work and working. And there's something to be said here. When you become a Christian, it changes your work ethic. It increases your work ethic. It gives value to your work ethic. It changes how you go to work. So let's break it down. This is a summary of a biblical work ethic. We can find in this simple verse three directives for a biblical work ethic. Three directives for a biblical work ethic. Please, again, parents, this is a wonderful curriculum to talk about with your younger and your older children. Three directives for a biblical work ethic. The first is in verse 28 in the first phrase. Stop any stealing. Now, that may seem like a strange place to start, but it it won't after you see what Paul's saying. Stop any stealing. He says, He who steals must steal no longer. Now, this is a very different command than the other ones we're going to be looking at in this chapter. The other commands just say, put this off and put this on. This one gives a qualifier. He says, 
this is not to the whole church. This is to the ones who are stealing. He's not assuming that everyone has this problem, but he says, he who steals. None of the rest of the commands are, are given that rider, that footnote. He who steals. It's a directive not addressed to the whole church, but only to the ones who struggle with this particular sin. I know what you're thinking. I know, I know. I'm not a prophet, but I know. You're thinking, yeah, I'm not that guy. I'm not that woman. That hot potato landed in your lap and you tossed it left or right. If you're on the left or the right of someone, you're in trouble because they tossed the hot potato toward you. I don't steal. Really? Really? Is that not you? Okay, let's just wait and see. It's built on the eighth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Interestingly, as with, other, as with the other nine commandments, there's no qualifications or exceptions in these simple words. The verse in Exodus 20, 15, do not steal, thou shalt not steal, you shall not steal, doesn't say, don't steal unless it's for a good cause, unless you're Robin Hood. Someone once said, Robin Hood stole from the rich and gave from the poor only because if the, the poor didn't have anything he could steal from them. Maybe true. Or how about this? Don't steal unless your employer is taking advantage of you. If he's taking advantage of you, you can certainly take advantage of him or her. Or don't steal unless you really need or want what that stealing will acquire for you. The simplicity of the command, you shall not steal, let him who steals steal no more, no longer, begs this question. What are you willing to do to get what you really want? What are you willing to do to get what you really want? Will you compromise and commit theft? Are you willing to steal information not in your own mind? Students, there's a word for that. It's plagiarism. That's stealing. Do you want the better grades so much you'll steal to get it? Are you willing not to report income on your income tax in order not to pay so many taxes? That's called stealing. Are you willing to download music, record music off someone's CD, if you know what those are anymore, or internet, so you can enjoy it absolutely free, that's called stealing. Theft is a big problem in our world, and all of us pay for it. Did a little research this week. Did you know that 5% of what you spend on anything you buy is to cover the business losses from theft? Approximately 200 billion, and they say that's a low estimate. Because it was stolen, they don't have an exact number. <laughs> Approximately $200 billion of material and time is stolen from employers every year. Retail stores lose over $40 billion a year from theft. Very interestingly, 44.5% of this figure comes from employees stealing from the company, whereas only 32.7% comes from shoplifting. The contemporary relevance of the Eighth Commandment and Paul's admonition here in Ephesians 4.28 could not be higher. You shall not steal. If you're stealing, stop it. And it shouldn't be difficult to prove to anyone that that's a needed admonition. 
At first glance, the commandment looks easy to land again in the lap of your neighbor, someone else. But it's more specific than that and it's more nuanced than that. Let's think about, just for a second, property and possessions in Bible times, okay? (laughs) Because it's different than our world. Walt Kaiser says, property in the Old Testament was considered as the blessing of God as well as the stewardship, a stewardship to be cared for. Why? Because the Lord owns everything in heaven and earth, and the Old Testament Israelites viewed possessions and property as a sign that the Lord had entrusted these blessings to their respective owners. End quote. He's right. Furthermore, the wealthy were always to use part of their property, part of their proceeds, part of their possessions to care for the poor. Again, remember the story of Ruth. She was allowed to work to glean in part of Boaz's field to make a living. Think about the situation of the original hearers of the Ten Commandments and the readers of the book of Ephesians. I mean, it's not like us. There were no banks, no FDIC, nothing was insured. That meant everything you owned was in your house, or if you had something very valuable, you would go out in a field, dig a hole, and bury it. And hopefully you remember where you buried it. Jesus uses that illustration in Matthew 13, doesn't he? Someone had buried something, forgotten about it. He says, you're you're walking in a field and you find a treasure. What a gift. What an amazing reality. A windfall. No banks. Everything you owned was in your house or in your field. That's possessions. That's money. That's property. All was in your mud brick house easily broken into or your canvas tent easily cut. There were no stores or supermarkets or or, um, uh, malls as we know them. No Amazon. This is significant because the majority of theft in Bible times was personal. You were stealing from the tent down the road. You were stealing from someone, not some industry or some store. There's a difference between stealing from an interpersonal corporate institution and stealing from the tent down the street. And again, there was no insurance. The consequence of being the victim of a burglary were far more severe in this context. When you lost something to, the, to a thief, you lost it with nothing to fall back on. So at first glance, this commandment, anyone who steals needs to stop it. You shall not steal. It's easy to say this is for someone else, but let's ask some hard questions. Do you ever give away a company's goods where you work? That's stealing. Ever plagiarize in your studies? That's stealing. Ever take things from where you work for your own use without permission? Stealing. You make phone calls on company time without permission. They're clearly personal. Stealing. Do you have a habit of borrowing things and not returning them? Theft. Stealing. Do you ever neglect to pay a bill that has been forgotten by a debtor? 
stealing. Do you arrive late to work? Stealing. You see, when you begin saying, am I using time and resources differently than they're intended? And look, there's permission. If, you're, if your employer says you can make calls at work, that's certainly okay. Or you can take your lunchtime to do searches you want to on the internet. That's what, Permission is okay, but permission should be granted. Otherwise, it's theft. How big is theft? How big a deal is this? It's scary. It's frightening. Because if you have a, an unrepented habit of thievery at at any level, you won't go to heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? They won't go to heaven. Then he gives us a list, the roll call of hell. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who are in sexual sin, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous. That's incredible. Not only those who commit stealing, but those who want what other people have so much that it dominates their life. That's the heart of stealing. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God or go to heaven. And my, I told you before, my favorite verb in the Bible, and such were, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In the middle of the tribulation, John talks about, in Revelation 9, those who are redeemed and those who are under the judgment of God and will go to hell. This is what he says. Rest of man, Revelation 9, 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons, the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thievery, their thefts. <laughs> John equates stealing with murder and sorcery and worshiping demons and idols. Consequently, stealing is eternally important to avoid. What's the heart of stealing? Why, why do people commit any, any theft at any level? It's, it's not hard to figure out. It's to get what you want without working for it. All theft is built on getting what you want without working for it. Jesus poses a soul-piercing questions to the disciples north of Galilee and Caesarea Philippi after the great confession of Peter that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He pulls them aside and says, 
Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then he asks, then, then he poses this in the form of a question. For what will it profit a man? What will you really get? If you gain the whole world, in other words, if you get everything you want and forfeit your soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's interesting. He says that materialism and wrongful gain are at the heart of revealing our hearts. What are you willing to do to get what you want? So Paul says, He who steals, if there's any stealing, stop it. Steal no longer. Stop any stealing. Second directive for a biblical work ethic, in the middle of the verse, work with diligence. Work with diligence. Now, it's important that you learn a Greek word here because it's, it's, it's dominating in this verse. Rather, he must kapiao, he must labor. There's a lot of words for the word work. This is not the normal word for work. He must labor, which means, let me give you what the Greek dictionary says of this, physically to become weary or tired from the effort. Strong exertion to work hard, to strive and struggle, to work with wearisome effort. You work hard. He must work hard performing with his own hands what is good. Paul is calling us not just to work, but to work hard, to be diligent, to be exemplary. I can't resist. Can, can, can we just sneak a peek in chapter 6 where we're going to be in a few weeks or months or so? Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves you can equate to employees and masters you can equate to employers in our context. Slaves or employees, be obedient to those who are your employers, your masters, according to the flesh. With fear and trembling, do this reverently in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. He doesn't say only if they're good and if they have your, your best in mind. He says, be a good, submissive worker, just as if you were submitting to Jesus as your boss. Then he gives us some specific, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. One of the more popular shows on television is, uh, maybe you've seen it. I wish I'd tell you I have. I just know the premise of it is Undercover Boss. And the whole premise of that show is that you get the boss to go incognito into the, the regular workforce of the company that he's over or the owner of and just see how they, how they do their work. And here's the whole premise of that show. Would that worker work differently if they knew that was the boss? Would you work differently if the boss was around? Oh, that's an important question. 
But more important question is, will you work differently because your master, the Lord Jesus, is around all the time? You're doing this for him, not just to please the eye service of men. In a parallel passage in Colossians, Paul writes very similarly, verse, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 23, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, we know he's talking about work in the next phrase. Whatever you do to work, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, not your earthly boss. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he does, and that without partiality. Work is to be done for the Lord's eyes, for his approval. You know why? Because he sees and he knows. Do you, do you believe that? Will you believe that? This is especially relevant when you work in, some of us are working at home. Some of you are working without your boss rarely, if ever, seeing you. When no one sees but the Lord, how's your work ethic? How is your work ethic? We're going to have a whole lot more to say about that when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. Again, the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Very important that I add a footnote here um, that may be relevant to some of you and not others, and that is this. Paul is in no way giving a justification for being a workaholic. Built into God's economy of work is resting, is a weekly vacation, and it's called the Sabbath. God intended that you don't work all the time. Are you ready for this? He didn't. Worked for six days, and on the seventh, he rested as an example to us. Do you rest? Do you? Whether you're a man or a woman, does your work consume you such that you neglect your responsibilities to the other things that God has given you? A wife, a husband, children, friends, your church, your care group, Believers in your sphere of fellowship and influence. I know many men and some women who have created widows and widowers or orphans to their work because they're so wed to work. Listen, we work hard, but we don't work irresponsibly hard. And if you want to know if you are or not, just ask someone who knows you closely and well and see what they say. Work with diligence. Learn how to be a hard worker for the Lord as a testimony, as as a sanctifying grace in your life. Stop any stealing. Work with diligence. And a third directive for biblical work ethic is interesting. Share with generosity. Share with generosity. I'm going to confess, this was very convicting to me. And I'd like to invite you into that conviction as well.
so that, work hard, do good with your work, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, why does anyone work? Three basic reasons. To meet our needs, to eat, right? Secondly, to to get things that we can enjoy in the world in which God gave us. You don't have to eat or drink water all the time. Sometimes you can can take a really strong, really strong, stain your teeth, unsweetened iced tea. That's a grace of God. Corner Bakery has a really good current iced tea. I just want to tell you that just for the record. There's nothing wrong with enjoying something that this world offers you. That's, that's okay. Ecclesiastes said, if anyone's going to enjoy this world, it ought to be people who can give God glory for this world. But all of that is qualified here by saying, we work also to have enough to share with others. Can we say it like this? Christians are generous people. By nature, a Christian is generous. Or at least they should be. And by the way, this passage is not talking about giving to the church. That's another passage we can talk about another time. This is talking about directly being a means of grace to meet the needs that you see. The goal of Christian finances is not to have a plush nest egg. It's not to have a bulging 401k. It's not to make our kids' life so that they don't have to work. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders, which were the elders at the church he's writing to here. It's toward the end of his life, Acts chapter 20, verse 33. Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I didn't come to you as a, as a materialist. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my own needs. I worked for what I needed and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Man, are you experiencing that principle? Have you, have you felt what it's like to be joyfully a giver? Here's an assignment that someone gave me a long time ago. I was a seminary professor as well as a pastor out in California. And most seminoids, as we call them, uh, uh, are just, you know, always tough that, you know, they open a card like this, anything in there that might help me eat this week. Um, and I remember this guy saying, what I regularly do and what I enjoy doing, I'll encourage you to, is I take some money, a $20 bill, a $100 bill, depending on what I have, $500, and I put it in cash in an envelope and I make sure that I give it to someone who will give it to someone where it can't be traced to me who will give it to them. He says, I can't tell you how many times that person, because I know that has come back to me and said, you're not going to believe what God did. Really? Pray tell. And they tell this wonderful story of me and just the joy, the joy that the Lord got the glory for that and I got to be a part of that is greater than receiving anything anyone could have given me. I respect that. What keeps us from being generous? What keeps us from being generously good givers? Well, I have a few notes to myself here. Ignorance. 
If you don't know the needs around you, you're not going to be generous to meet them. This is another plug for our care groups. We want you in our church to be associated with weekly or bi-weekly people whose lives you can know, whose lives you can be intimately enough with that you know what's going on in their life and they know what's going on in yours. If you don't know their needs, you'll never meet them. Also, selfishness keeps us from being generously good givers. Wanting what we can get more than how we can serve. If you get an unexpected check, you make some extra money, is your first question, what can I get? What can I do? What can I, where can I go with this money? Rather than, who could I serve? I think Paul would tap us on the shoulder and say, if you've been given an abundance, did the Lord give you that as a test? as a grace and a kindness to be able to serve someone in need. How about this? What keeps us from being generously good givers? Debt. Ah, debt will swallow the life out of you. This should be obvious. If you're swimming or drowning in debt, you've limited yourself and how you can glorify God in your generosity. I heard a man say one time, the most spiritual thing you can do in your life is get out of debt. Now, this is for another time. There is good debt and bad debt. Secured debt for a house, maybe for an automobile, is different than going into debt for things that you want for your pleasure. Laziness also keeps us from being generously good givers. Just not producing any abundance. We have nothing to give because we didn't work hard. We don't have anything extra. And then lastly, trusting in our riches more than our God. Trusting in our riches more than God. We think, well, I can't give. What if I have a need? I mean, I, I need so, and so, so much money in the bank in case something happens, even though something is happening now in the life of someone close to you. So we're saving for a just-in-case when they have a moment that they need Earning more money than you need for the basics of living is a blessing. But this overage, this abundance, is not intended by God for us to live lavishly in luxury. It's given as a stewardship of His resources to build His kingdom, serve others, and die to self. God is explicit that we should be thinking this way. 2 Corinthians 8, 14, At the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may be a supply for your need and that there be equality. He's not arguing for communism. He's just saying it doesn't make sense in Christ's church, in Christ's kingdom, for some people to be living in luxury and other people to be dying in poverty. And don't say, well, they should just go work. Maybe they've tried. There are circumstances where people are looking for jobs and they can't find a job. We're not here to be punishers. We're here to be servants. Randy Alcorn writes this. <laughs> Too often, we assume that God has increased our income to increase our standard of living. When he has stated his purpose is to increase our standard of giving. Alcorn goes on to say, God doesn't make us rich so we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children. 
or so we can insulate ourselves from God's provision. God gives us abundant material blessings so that we can give it away and give it generously. End quote. Generosity 101 is in this verse. How generous are you? You don't have to give yourself into poverty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying out of your abundance, bless people. Jesus was straight up about this. Matthew 6, 19, Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. There's the stealing again. In other words, don't put all of your finances into stuff, into materials. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Invest in the kingdom. For where your great principle, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. And they probably thought, oh, this guy or that guy. He goes on to say, either he will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So just a few quick takeaways, okay? I jotted down six for myself. You can have these if you want. You can generate your own. But this is what I felt the Lord tapping me on the shoulder about. First, commit yourself to working hard at your job. Can't all of us increase our diligence to be productive for the Lord as pleasing His eyes and not man's? Commit yourself to work hard at your job. Kapiao. Number two, repent of any stealing you can identify and all of us that we look hard enough can find elements of thievery. Repent of any stealing you can identify. Thirdly, pray about how you should use your money and any abundances you acquire. Pray about your money. Pray about how can I use my money? Not how can I live in 30 years, but how can I help someone else live now? Number four, have a budget. Have a plan for how you use your money. There is, I'm not saying don't invest in your, in your future. Jesus honored investing. Remember, he has several parables where he chided the one who didn't invest when he left them with steward, things to steward. Investing and having a 401k, having a retirement, that, that, that nothing is bad about that. But if, you're in, if your world is how much did you make, if your pleasure is generated by how much did you make in the stock market this week, this month, this year, more than how much did I serve people that I could have, something is askew. Have a budget. Have a plan. Have some wiggle room in your budget to be able to meet needs when they come up. Just two more. Have a planned response to any extra money that comes in. Have a planned response. doesn't mean you can't get something you really wanted if you get some extra income, extra money, but it does mean that you've thought about, if I were blessed in a way that was unexpected, how can I unexpectedly bless someone else? And remember, this says, in need, 
You're looking at genuine needs. And then lastly, investing is not wrong, but being stingy is. <laughs> not being generous is a sin. This simple verse grabs the essence of biblical work and a biblical work ethic. We work hard, we apply our best effort, and we recognize we are accountable to God as stewards of the money our work generates. A man who just stopped me long ago said this, show me all your calendar and show me all your receipts and I'll tell you what's important in your life. Similarly, Randy Alcorn says this. This is convicting. What you do with your resources in this life is your autobiography. Wow. Work hard, be generous, don't steal. <laughs> 